Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. No matter who you are and where you're from, you need water. Clean, safe drinking water. Multiple times a day. And that's one of the biggest challenges across the world. And this week, we're going to look at some of the challenges in maintaining clean and safe drinking water and how we can use some ingenious science to make sure that your water is safe to drink. One of the most serious challenges facing the world is being able to provide enough safe and reasonable quality drinking water. And that's a challenge not just for the developing countries where infrastructure is quite poor often and distribution to people is very difficult. But even in developed countries, from whether it be Flint in Michigan in the United States, with its devastating impact of lead poisoning in its water system, all the way even in Australia, we've had some incidents of water contamination from our major water sources causing such as major outbreaks of biological contaminants in water supplies, like the 1998 Sydney water crisis, where there was a Cryptosporidium and Giardia outbreak in the Sydney water supply between July and September of 1998. It took them a long time to fix that and put in place treatment. And that was, in Australia even, a rather relatively recent but big scandal in water treatment and water quality. So water quality is incredibly important, but the problem is it's not like it's a single simple answer. When you ask someone if the water is good to drink, well, that's a varying question. If you ask them if it's potable water or not, or water that is fit for human consumption, there's a lot of different criteria that we have to assess it by. And that level of water quality is different between, say, water for drinking, water for watering your garden, or washing your clothes, or water for environmental runoff in creeks and streams. All of those have different requirements for water quality, and we have to measure a number of different parameters. But those parameters come back to what could go wrong in water. So let's look at that first. Well, obviously, if you consider all the water across Earth, you have water that's salty, high saline content, and you have water that's not, freshwater and seawater. Okay, so let's discard the seawater, because we're not going to drink that because it's too salty. That is one of the tests that you obviously have to do. We can get at through a number of different chemical measures, alkalinity, pH, and so on, all looking for the dissolved presence of salts in water. But just like you can dissolve salt in water, you can also dissolve other metals, whether that be iron being flaked off from pipes or even lead, and that's how the lead pipes in Flint, Michigan, were actually being spread through the water distribution network. It wasn't that they were starting with lead, but it's all the lead was flaking off the pipes, the aging, crumbling old lead pipes, and that was contaminating the water. The same thing can happen with iron, which is a particularly big one, as many of the pipes in many water systems are cast iron. That can dissolve and be spread through the water system, which is not great. Your body can handle a certain amount of iron, but not really much want to like ingest a large portion of it. So we have to filter out metals. And there's a lot of different types of metals. Metals like lead and mercury we really need to be serious about testing for, but others we can have a certain sort of accommodation of. So things like potassium, calcium, manganese, magnesium, iron, things we want to filter out. And serious ones like lead, mercury and arsenic we can take a more drastic treatment process for. And after that, you have to start worrying about other dissolved things like dissolved pharmaceuticals or drugs or chemicals that could be in the water. Those are a bit trickier to detect, but do need to be treated or removed. Once you've got through all of those, let's say you have perfectly fresh water, water with no trace metals or salts that you want to worry about. In that water can be developed or carried biological contamination. 
And biological contamination is pretty much the last problem that you have to try and filter out. You can either filter it out by trying to remove big particles or microbes, or you can dose it with chemicals to try and treat it. That's where we use things like chlorine and fluorine to try and treat the water, clean it, and then that chlorine will dissolve and be down to safe levels. But it kills off any microbes living in the water. And that is a serious problem. That's what they had in the 1998 Sydney water crisis. So let's say you filtered out all the nasty bugs living in the water, and you've filtered out all of the metals and other things. You've treated the water. Then you've got pretty safe drinking water. When we talk about recycled water, it's actually often can be, depending on where you are, much cleaner than other types of water, simply because it goes through so many processes to do all those treatment steps. Filtering, processing, going through membranes, boiling, all of those different steps the water goes through as it's being treated to become recycled water. So often than not, recycled water can actually be cleaner than regular water, depending on your raw water source. Certainly recycled water can be a lot more treated and better quality than bore water if you draw your hole down to an aquifer and pump out that water because that bore water may have a lot of dissolved metals or salts in it that you can't otherwise detect. So that's why everyone from people with tanks on their farms through to full citywide systems try to filter out using different types of filters, sand filters, granulations, coagulation, flocculation filters, or trying to air it out, pass it through membranes to get rid of other dissolved inorganics and then to actually disinfect the water with chemical treatment to try and get rid of any organics. And so all those things work together. But it's actually a really serious problem. And we're going to look at a couple of examples of people trying to tackle this problem in ingenious ways. In the Australian state of New South Wales, they have a big major investment program called the Secure Safe Domestic Water Project. That's billions of dollars being spent from councils all the way down to dam owners across the large state in cities and particularly rural areas. But researchers have been trying to target a niche of that population where water quality is really, really important. Because these people aren't connected to a water distribution network. They're relying on their own sources of water, whether that be a dam, a tank, or both, or bore water, all of these different sources need to be treated and protected so that people can drink safe water. So even in a country like Australia, this is still a very serious problem. And that's where researchers like adjunct professor Peter Waterman from Charles Stewart University have been trying to lead the charge in stopping the spread or the extreme risk from one of the most dangerous parasites that can live in your water source. And this is, for example, the Neglera fowleri, which is otherwise known as a brain-eating parasite. Look, an infection from this parasite is incredibly rare. But in the last recent years, there's been a few deaths in children who are most susceptible from it, um, especially in remote outback Queensland. For example, one-year-old Cash Cow died in April 2015 um, after she drank water which had been contaminated with this brain-eating parasite. Now, the Galeria fowlery was first identified in South Australia in the 1960s, and there are around 300 known deaths from this parasite around the world. So there's not a lot of deaths, but 25 of them have been in Australia. And we believe that the figures would be realistically much higher, but it's very hard to diagnose. It's a microorganism that lives in warm water over 25 degrees Celsius, and that amoeba sort of gets into the brain when water enters the nose. 
And it's really dangerous for children because they have an underdeveloped slither of bone at the top of their nasal passage. It can really easily, the water and the microbes, get from their nose into the brain. And once it's in the brain, it really starts to deteriorate it. And it's such a preventable thing. Because what we need to do to prevent this microbe from getting into people's brains and eating it is just taking a few simple steps to protect the water. Now, if you're on a farm in remote Queensland or New South Wales or any area in the outback of Australia, you'll have a couple of different potential sources to feed your family water. Rainwater, dam, and bore water. And those three different sources all have their own risks. For example, if you have a dam, that's great. It's a large body of water, but it's not moving. It's still. And that means you can end up with microbes sort of developing in there. If there's any creatures that come past it, if you have any defecation, any nearby that dam, if you have any creatures landing or, or contaminating, there's a ripe breeding ground for bacteria and microorganisms. And you say, well, okay, that's all right. Then we'll just use rainwater tanks. But the problem with rainwater tanks is that dens not to actually get used. You have a tap at the bottom and that's where you're taking your water out from. But on the top layer, you have potentially breeding ground of all kinds of microorganisms, algae, bacteria, you name it. So that kind of tank scum can also lead to a lot of variety of problems too. That's not even considering leaching from the tank itself with heavy metal content into the water. So then you go, okay, well, I'll pump the water out of the ground from the aquifer and use bore water. But as we spoke about before, bore water is often very contaminated with dissolved salts and metals. So you have to understand the risks before you drink this water. So what can you do? And that's where things like filters, small chlorine treatment systems, boiling your water, they all have their role to play. Some of them can be expensive and prohibitive, and people can get lazy and say, well, we used to boil our water every day, but now that the drought's broken and we have some water around, we don't really bother it anymore. And that's why groups such as this Secure Safe Domestic Water Project are actually having large community events to try and encourage farmers and those living in remote areas to share ideas, share equipment, to help each other get safe drinking water and to encourage good safe drinking water practices. Because a lot of these deaths are preventable. But that doesn't mean we're not looking for cheap and effective solutions to make sure that people have good and safe drinking water. So our next story is going to look at some examples of research from the United States in developing cheap and cost-effective ways of having safe and secure drinking water for exactly these kind of situations. A really neat and simple example of water treatment is a device called the Life Straw. The Life Straw were designed by the Swiss-based company Vestergaard Franzen, and it was developed for people living in developing nations and for distribution during humanitarian crises. Basically, it's a small straw device that you put into the water source and drink through. And when you suck through it, you're actually pulling the water through a whole bunch of filters. And that, those filters make it safe for drinking. And those filters can last a certain period of time. They're not going to last forever because eventually they build up and become less practical and useful. And it's roughly around between 1,000 and 4,000 litres of water that they can filter. 
But for distribution in a crisis like the 2010 Haiti earthquake, the Pakistani floods, 2010, the Ecuador earthquake, crisis in Rwanda, these live straws have been distributed to thousands upon thousands of people to help supply safe drinking water cheaply and effectively. But if you're a hiker or a soldier or someone who wants to have something that they can pull out in the case of an emergency, if you live in an earthquake-prone area, for example, you can actually also purchase life straws yourself for the exact same reason. But that's one example of clever science being put into practice. But it's got a limited lifespan. So researchers from Michigan Tech's Civil and Environmental Engineering Department have been digging into some other ideas for helping tackle water quality for everything from municipal water tanks to all the way through low, small-scale tanks and farmland developments. And they've been tackling four elegant and cost-effective solutions to water treatment. They've published these in the Journal of Hydraulic Engineering, the Journal of Molecular Liquids and Collodes and Services. And it's a very exciting, interesting piece of work led by Mohamed Alizad Fard and Brian Barkadol. Now, as we spoke about before, a lot of people have tanks. And the problem is the tank outlet is at the bottom and the inlet is at the side or at the top. And so that top layer of water never gets turned over. It never gets drunk out or drained from the tank, except when you say have a fire and you use a lot of water. Then that last really dirty, stagnant bit of water where a lot of E. coli bacteria and algae have been growing suddenly gets out. And so not only have you used that water in an emergency situation for a fire, for example, but then you also will get people sick. So to remedy that problem, Elizabeth Fard and Barkdale created a showerhead-like attachment that can be added to any new or existing water tank at really, really simple cost. And what that PVC sprinkler does at the top of the tank and the reverse one at the bottom, it injects water into the system just by spreading it out. And that keeps the water circulating. And that really, really dead simple system is really low tech and robust, which means that you can put it in place pretty simply, whether or not you're a municipal department with feeding a couple of hundred people or just in your own farm tank. And that's great. That helps break up that surface and keep the water circulating in a tank and prevent bacteria forming on the surface. But that doesn't help you with micropollutants. That only helps you with organic contaminants. So how do you handle micropollutants? And if you look at places with small municipal systems or farms, they don't really equip to handle that. And these micropollutants, such as pharmaceutical hormones, microplastic nanoparticles, all these sort of things can be dissolved into the water and then spread through. And in very small trace amounts, they can still do quite a bit of damage, not in the short term, but in the long term. So how do you find a quick and efficient solution to that problem? So they turned to polymer-coated magnetic nanoparticles. And what they were using these nanoparticles to do was to absorb known chemical pollutants, such as tenalidide. That's often something found in detergents to mask smell. Bicephenol A, or BPA, which is often used in plastics to make them clear and tough. Trixolan, an antibacterial and antifungal that used to be used in cleaning products, is now banned. Or different types of herbicides, or even anti-inflammatories or estrogen supplements. So these polymer-coated magnetic nanoparticles really, really effectively absorb for between 15 minutes around 98% of these chemicals present in the water. And you only need a really, really small amount of them to absorb this. So you basically, you put these nanoparticles into the water, they suck up all these chemical contaminants, and then what happens? Now you've got all the chemical contaminants in the one place, attached to this magnetic nanoparticle. And that's where it being magnetic is the key. You can pass a magnet over it, 
pull them over to the side, emptying them out, and now you have cleaned water. And you've also taken out the treating method, these nanoparticles, so you don't eat those as well. Now, this could be further refined to be done using carbon nanotubes, but that's less effective and investigated. But once you rinse off the these nanoparticles with a methanol solution, you can put them back in and just keep using them over and over and over again. So it's like a filtration method, or just a very effective one using magnetism. Now, the best part about these two different techniques is they're quick, efficient, and also affordable enough that people can put them into practice, whether it be for a small town of a couple of hundred people, all the way to a remote farming community or the developing world. And that's what we need here to help protect and save lives. Now we spoke about recycled water before, and recycled water works for a number of different processes to turn water that was once potable, got contaminated, whether it was used in sewerage or just general use, comes back into a treatment plant and gets turned back into water that can be used for reuse. But when we first started investigating and using recycled water, especially in the late 90s, a lot of researchers and water practitioners and water quality plant managers were finding that even in extremely clean recycled water, that's perfectly clean, high concentrations of a carcinogenic chemical by the name of N-nitrocytodimethylenine, or let's just call it NDMA, started appearing. And the problem was, they didn't know where or how this NDMA was occurring. That was really quite worrying because they got an otherwise perfectly clean bit of water. Then, people started to do a long series of research trying to identify what part of the process was. And by adjusting the chlorine chemistry, people could start to lower the presence of NDMA. But what they found is if you had any other chemicals introduced into the water, that could throw out that whole chemical equation balance. So there was a lot of dispute into what was actually causing the NDMA. Was it a part of the treatment process itself? Was it just a part of recycling water which just led to this high concentration of this carcinogenic chemical? And it was a large area of debate in the field for quite many years. And new research from the University of Southern California, led by Assistant Professor Daniel McCurry and undergraduate students Meredith Huang, Master student Xiyong Huang, have been digging into this exact topic. And their work was published in the Environmental Science and Technology Letters as the cover story in March. And what they found is that this disinfectant byproduct, the NDMA, was specifically formed just due to the specific chlorine levels. To understand why this is a whole huge area of debate, we have to take a couple of step backs. So originally, when we started seeing this problem, researchers just saw that the NDMA was being produced as a byproduct of the chlorination step, which makes sense, but we need the chlorination step to treat any microbes that we've got in the water. So what to do? Well, if you lower the levels and balance the chlorine levels, then you could reduce the likelihood of NDMA forming. So researchers did that. But around five years ago, some research in Toronto found that certain pharmaceutical compounds left over in water, like an antacid, like a Zantac, could actually form NDMA when they were chlorinated. So basically, when you were treating this water, if that water had any of these pharmaceutical compounds left over in it, 
like Zantac or Zantac-like chemicals, then you could create as a byproduct, unfortunately, this carcinogenic chemical MDMA. So how do you address this problem? And to isolate what the exact cause was, was it these trace pharmaceuticals being left in here? Or was it the fault of the treatment process itself, the use of just monochloramide? Now, the researchers showed that by carefully isolating the, the studies and trying to test for all the different combinations, that what they were seeing is that it wasn't the monochloramide, the treating agent that was causing these things to develop, this carcinogenic chemical NDMA. What the researchers identified it was, it was dichloramine itself, not monochloramine, the normal treating agent, that was responsible for the formation of NDMA. So if you, in your treating, ignore and don't put in dichloramine and only treat with monochloramine, then you can safely treat the water like normal without having to worry about developing of NDMA. So whilst we treat water to try and make it safe for drinking, there's a lot of careful things we have to balance. And water isn't a simple science because there's a lot of strange chemical reactions that are going on there in practice. Ones we intend, like water treatment with monochloramine, and ones we don't intend, like dichloramine or other particles reacting with trace pharmaceuticals left over in it. But still, recycled water can be safe as long as we take the right steps and balance the chemistry to avoid developing potentially dangerous carcinogens. And so that's some great work being done out of the University of Southern California to validate that our treatment methods for recycled water were safe and we just need to take the right steps. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we covered the important science of keeping your water safe and talked about the cost-effective ways to make your water safe to drink for your tank, for your city and for your state. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.